Our old friend, Mike Consall from the Roosevelt Institute has a new book out called Freedom from the Market. The neoliberals were very aggressive and affirmative in using the state to carry out their vision of what they believe freedom in a good society is. It's just one that unfortunately has been suffocating everyday people. It's a super timely book and a very important conversation about what freedom really means and to whom. You can't talk about freedom without talking about power. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about freedom. And to set up the conversation, uh, she's usually behind the scenes, but we're going to unmute our producer, Annie. Hello. I have a little story for you, actually. Yeah. This is your onboarding story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is my onboarding story. Nick, I'm certain that you've never heard this story, so I'm looking forward okay. to telling you. But when I was hired on my first day, I arrived and I got a little one sheet of printer paper that had four bullets on it. And that was my onboarding process. Three of them were like relevant Wi-Fi building info. And the fourth said, don't ask Goldie about the Lochner versus New York Supreme Court decision. <laughs> and they said, welcome to Civic Ventures. <laughs> <laughs> we're such a class organization, aren't we? Yeah, just dotting all the, it's so dotting today. the I's and crossing yeah. the T's. Yeah, that's right. I am, by the way, the person who wrote that was an, a lovely professional person, and and I was I felt very welcomed. But today I'm violating the terms of my hire. And Goldie, <laughs> what is the Lochner versus New York Supreme Court decision? Right. You know, what our uh, the very first episode of our old podcast, the other Wa Washington, we spent it talking about Lochner because I'm so obsessed with it. Lochner was a Supreme Court decision. 1905, something like that, which basically uh, threw out a New York state law that limited bakery employees working hours to only 10 hours a day. Uh, and they threw out the law saying that it was a violation of the right to contract uh, under the 14th Amendment. And for the next almost 40 years, uh, that Lochner decision was used to toss out uh, workplace regulations all across the country, both in states uh, and federally, uh, including efforts early in, in the New Deal to do a voluntary minimum wage, not even a mandatory minimum wage, but to have employers agree to do a minimum wage voluntarily. And the courts had thrown that out. And it wasn't until 1936 and it was famously known as the switch in time that saved nine, as FDR was threatening to pack the bench, that one conservative Supreme Court justice flipped on it uh, in a case, by the way, which was a minimum wage law from Washington state. And suddenly Lochner was out the window and all of the progressive programs from the New Deal, the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, uh, et cetera, all of that became possible because Lochner was no longer law. And the moral of that story is that in that moment when Lochner was defeated, 
working people in America got a lot more free. Right. And, <laughs> and it's interesting. And this is why, why it's so timely that you bring this up, Annie, is because we're talking about freedom on this episode. And the whole basis of that Lochner decision was that it violated the freedom of employers and the freedom of employees to contract, to freely contract. It was a violation of your freedom. And that's why we couldn't regulate working hours or wages or uh, most anything else. And then when we flipped to that decision and said, eh, no, actually we can regulate those things. Well, it was less freedom for employers uh, to dictate the rules of the workplace, but it was more freedom for employees because it helped uh, address that natural power imbalance between labor and capital, between workers and their employers. Right. Well, good job, Goldie. I think I was warned against that topic due to the risk of getting trapped in a long Goldie rant, but you uh, you really held it together. Yeah, yeah well, uh, as you're warned, I got all those hour-long rants out of my system already. Exactly. <laughs> and on today's episode of Pitchfork Economics, we get to talk to somebody who has thought and written a lot about that, our old friend Mike Consol uh, from the Roosevelt Institute, who has a new book out called Freedom from the Market. I think it's a, it's a super timely book and a very important conversation to have about what, what freedom really means uh, and to whom. And you know, the full title of Mike's book is Freedom from the Market, America's Fight to Liberate Itself from the Grip of the Invisible Hand. And of course, as, as we've talked about before on the podcast, the invisible hand is the bullshit perversion of Adam Smith's concept that uh, everybody acting on their own self-interest uh, makes the society better as a whole. Right. It's the unseen forces that supposedly move the free market economy around. Right. Which is not untrue. It's just not true to the exclusion of all else. Okay, so Goldie, connect the invisible hand with the Lochner so that our listeners know we're not crazy. Okay. You can think of the invisible hand as the patron saint of laissez-faire economics, which was the dominant economic philosophy at the time the Supreme Court ruled in Lochner v. New York, which historically has got to be one of the most cynical rulings ever because it used the 14th Amendment which was intended to protect the rights of African-Americans and instead perverted it to uh, protect the rights of corporations and create this huge imbalance of power between uh, employers and workers. Right, so freedom from the market and freedom from the invisible hand is really mostly about reclaiming the word freedom, just like the end of the Lochner era did. Instead of, I am free to work my employees as hard as I can, it started to become, and it's still becoming, I, the employee, am free to pursue the other things in life that matter beyond income. And of course, there are a lot of places in the economy where this reimagining of freedom is relevant today. We've talked about a lot of those on the podcast. Yeah, like off the top of my head, uh, mandated universal vacation time. Yeah, two weeks is, is bullshit. I mean, that's nothing. We need something like the French, six weeks. So basically, like any labor movement that has to do with the reclamation of a person's time back from the greed of the free market. And, you know, through this lens, you can make a really strong case for universal healthcare, free college, all the good stuff. Absolutely. Well, let's talk to Mike. My 
My name is Mike Konzel. I'm the director at the Roosevelt Institute, which is the nonprofit partner of the FDR Presidential Library, where we study and analyze policy from the point of view of a Roosevelt, uh, you know, Roosevelt New Deal frame. I uh, study inequality in the financial sector and many other things. And I just wrote a book called Freedom from the Market, uh, which came out earlier this year. So let's start by talking about freedom from the market. Just sort of give us an outline of uh, your argument in the book. So uh, the book makes three key arguments. One is that freedom requires us to not be solely dependent on the market for key goods in our lives. That freedom um, is just as much about our relationship to economics and being dependent on markets for the key spheres of our lives makes us unfree. Um, the second, and this is kind of the, the key way the book works, is that this has always been with us and that people have been fighting this battle for centuries. And so the book is a series, it's a short book. Uh, the thought behind it was like move fast and decommodify things. And you know, each chapter is a different sphere of life, be it time and the fight over the eight-hour workday. And in each chapter um, tells a story of one specific battle and both the ways people talked about what was at stake and how they deployed notions of freedom in order to make the case for a robust government intervention, either for public programs or for limiting the scope of the market. So one I just mentioned, for instance, was free time in the eight-hour workday, but other things were things like free care, World War II daycares, free health, Medicare, and how it impacted uh, and allowed for desegregation in Southern hospitals. And third is that a lot of what's dysfunctional, but also a lot of what's eminent and what it, people are hungry for in our politics today revolves around this notion of market dependency and being free from the market. Uh, whether it's the Fight for 15 movement, whether or not it's Medicare for all, whether or not it's uh, the way people talk about the platforms and other things, um, they all share, even though they're all very different kinds of battles, political and intellectual and strategic, they all share this common notion of that freedom really does require us to be free from the market in these spheres. You know, one of the things that you write a lot about is the relationship between the market and time, just the time that people have. Can, can you go into that in a little bit more detail? You know, one reason I, I wrote the book this way is because I wanted to originally write a, like a policy book or an economics book about a public programs. And I found that that was really dry and it was kind of boring and technical, but more so it didn't really get to the urgency. You know, I, I write boring and technical things all the time. So that didn't necessarily <laughs> you're, bother You're me. an expert in boring right, and technical. Right, like I can, I can be boring and technical. So like that wasn't what was like stopping me. What, what I felt was, was not being conveyed was the urgency and the level and intensity at which people were fighting for these things and the way that they impacted everyday people's lives. And one of the things, um, you know, looking back at the eight hour workday, you know, people in the 19th century, so like it, it has a long history, you know, the first general strike uh, probably was in the 1830s in Philadelphia, and it was about a 10 hour workday. Right, because they were being made to work 14 hours. Yes, like <laughs> right. they were working yeah. crazy yeah. hours. Right. And they felt that and, and, you know, wage labor was very new at this point. And the way, the way like, you know, modern capitalist wage labor was very new at this point. And they felt it as an infringement on their freedom and spoke about it this way. Uh, and though people at the time were making the economic arguments that um, limiting uh, working hours would help free up jobs for people who were displaced by all the changes that were happening in the economy and also help put pressure on raising wages and building productivity and getting employers to invest more to try to like get the economy in a positive some a high road situation, they were also fundamentally making arguments about freedom, that if they had no control over their working hours, they could not lead the lives that they wanted. They could not be with their communities. They could not be with their families. They could not make plans. It was a real problem for civil society and all the things that really make our communities and our lives worthwhile. 
and I, you know, I'm reading this, it was like, this speaks to us way out here in 2021, even though everything's different, that thing is still the same thing as it was in the 1840s. And, you know, the more you go through things, the more you see that that's still the case, that the, the ways in which we are insecure, the ways in which we are unfree because the market have a through line. And it also helps point us to what the solutions are because the solutions also have a through line. Yeah. So l- let's talk for just a second about the differences between positive freedom and negative freedom, because we have talked on this podcast about that a lot, but it's uh, it's worth underscoring and reminding folks that negative freedom is at the very heart of neoliberalism. Absolutely, and I'd go even further. So negative freedom is the idea of freedom from, yeah. uh, and usually freedom from the government. Yes. And- you know, the idea that the government can't stop you from doing the things you want. Uh, and positive freedom is associated with freedom too, like freedom to be able to get healthcare, or get a good education. And that has a long history in the 20th century. Neoliberalism doesn't just say it's about negative liberty. It also blurs the distinction between the two because, and this was always the problem for Isaiah Berlin and all the other people who kind of try to like make this distinction work is that the economy is a state project. So if you are working a job, you are not free from the government because the government is there enforcing the laws, sure. enforcing the properties, creating the macroeconomic conditions. They privatize and enclosure the land that you're working on. You know, everything about that economic relationship, the products you make are put into a matrix of laws and wealth building and capital that allows uh, capitalists and owners and bosses to do certain kinds of things. And your rights as a worker, and this is, goes back way back to the beginning of the economy when workers were essentially working under like serf-like uh, contracts in the 19th century, if they weren't you know, slaves or indentured servants, you know, all that is bound up with the law. So th- the distinction I always want to make with this is that in the same way, so, when, so with that in mind, it's not easy to d- blur the distinction of freedom from and freedom to, because freedom to own wealth and run a business or sell your labor involves the government. And so you can't just say, well, like, you know, leave me out, get out of my way government for me to be a billionaire, right? right. Like that doesn't happen. And the thing I want to emphasize is that in the same way, we can ask whether or not the government is making us more or less free when it comes to uh, speech or assembly or uh, search and seizure and incarceration or, and all the other rights we associate with, like the Bill of Rights. We, we have to ask in the same critical democratic way, is the government making us more or less free with the way the economy is structured? And I think it's increasingly less free in the past decades. So, so isn't this distinction really uh, bullshit in that one person's freedom from is really the freedom to infringe on another person's freedom to. An employer may be free from government interference, but that just means the employee is subjected to uh, the the employer's interference in their daily lives. Absolutely. There's a, a, a great quote from uh, President Lincoln. He's telling a, a parable, and it's about the Civil War, but it's also um, just as much about workers and bosses, and, and which is also related to slavery. You know, from the point of view, you know, when um, the shepherd who is trying to keep the wolf from the sheep, you know, from the point of view, like they're interfering with the wolf's freedom, right? But, you know, to the sheep, it's like they're, you know, it's a, it's a savior. And it's the same kind of relationship is that, you know, there's no neutral space here when it comes right. to the market economy. Uh, and the government is setting it up in certain ways to that either, you know, if you think of 
and, and neoliberalism has taught us to like think of it as so baseline, but if you think of things like the nature of a corporation, which is a government creation that induces people with certain rights and responsibilities and gives them certain rewards and uh, obligations, even that kind of thing, as basic as that, uh, has a huge skeleton behind it of law. And you can ask like, well, whose freedom is this working for? And can we distribute this bundle of obligations in a different way? Right, right. To me, the, the big distinction is between rival freedom and non-rival freedom. A non-rival freedom, like freedom of speech, I can have as much freedom of speech as I want, and it doesn't, it doesn't give you any less freedom of speech. But property rights, that's rival. If, if I have control over property, you don't have control over property. Two people can't have control over the same piece of property, whether that's land or uh, a business or property in yourself. Absolutely, though, as we see in our era, it's, it's, it's easier and easier to commodify ideas and um, be quite ruthless about who gets to use right. them and who gets That's to enforce right. them with our regime of copyright. Um, you know, one of the chapters, Free uh, Economy, talks about the, you know, like there's a lot of ways to talk about neoliberalism. Um, one thing I wanted to emphasize, just because I think it's a different angle, is the way in which over the last 40 years, the notion of the public has been stripped out of the public corporation, the public domain, and the public utility where each of those three had a long, centuries-long evolution of give and take and what, you know, what, how we set up intellectual property so that can help innovate but doesn't become cumbersome or, or exploitative. Uh, public utilities, the kind of obligations certain kinds of businesses afflicted with the public purpose have towards their customers and, and consumers. And the public corporation where shareholders had been gradually shedding rights for over the past century up until the 1970s, how neoliberals very consciously went and created through law a revolution in each of those that made them much function much more like property, much more like rivalrous things. And I, I think it's an interesting story, but it also shows how the neoliberals were very aggressive and affirmative in using the state to carry out their vision. The idea that they're for small government or unfettered markets or getting government out of the way is, is kind of a lie, or at least it's an ideological confusion, because they are no less aggressive and using the law and using the courts to carry out their vision of what they believe freedom and a good society is. It's just one that uh, unfortunately has been suffocating every day. People. That's right. As Elizabeth Anderson uh, noted on this podcast, there's no such thing as more or less regulation. There's only who has power and who doesn't have power. You know, and neoliberals worked assiduously to strip uh, ordinary people of power and accrete it to you know, corporate actors than themselves. Yeah, her work on envisioning the workplace is a, well, if, it, if the workplace was a state, what would it look yeah. like? And it would look like the most despotic regime you can yeah, imagine, right. where you can be surveilled with no rights and, you know, dismissed at any cost or at any time and you're subject to all kinds of abuses. You know, and so the you know the book absolutely reflects on her work quite a bit when talking about uh, the eight-hour workday and the Wagner Act, uh, which passed you know the Unionization Act from the New Deal. Yeah, she calls the she calls the modern workplace the uh, communist dictatorships in our midst. <laughs> right. And one thing I found when looking at how people talked about freedom in these programs is that the people who passed the Wagner Act, which created mid-century unionization, were always used the language of freedom. Labor called the Wagner Act um, labor's Magna Carta. You know, like the people who were passing and under like talked about the unfreedom of working for a boss where you have no say except to quit and good luck finding another job. Right. Um, like, you know, like the, the language of freedom, you know, 
was through all of this work. And it's, it's really impressive. And I think it's something that can be utilized again today. Yeah. So I want to come back to time because I think it's timely. That's a terrible, terrible pun there, isn't it? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> terrible. Uh, C plus. Yeah. Yeah. But it is an important thing to discuss now, I think, because, you know, I think that the, the pandemic is in some ways accelerated and magnified the degree to which uh, we are perpetually connected to our employers, you know, at home, at work, in the morning, at, the, at night, so on and so forth. And, you know, the time pressure the market has put all citizens under, both working class folks who are, who are abused in all sorts of ways. I mean, put low pay aside, really, really, really exploitive scheduling practices and so on and so forth. But also white collar folks who used to put in eight hours and then go home and devote themselves to other things for the other 16 hours in the day. All of that is, has been eroding and is eroding even faster. And I just, I just think it's really interesting and important to resurface these issues uh, in ways that let people kind of see what's happening to them. The eight-hour workday is maybe one of the most relevant for now, uh, especially with unstable scheduling or just-in-time scheduling, as, as it's called. Like where you know people do not start their week knowing necessarily the hours right. they're going to work or, or not the hours they're going to work the next week. And you know how do you build a robust social life with workers and that kind of stress? Like you wonder why it's tough to start and maintain a family or to um, volunteer or join a bowling league or all the things that we think of is envision, you know, having a rich social life. I think it's very telling that people talk a lot about the decline of bowling and social leagues and, and robust community involvement, but all that stuff was actually pretty low in the 1920s when it really increased was in the 1940s and 1950s with the wave of unionization. Yeah. And that's not even counting unions as, civil society, social groups, which they are. So, um, you know, you think of strong worker protections, not just about wages, the wages are obviously very important, but as you said, things like control over your time, having reasonable expectations of how you're going to be treated and be treated with respect. You know, when you read people fighting for their unions and fighting for the Wagner Act, um, you know, that, that issue is just as much, if not more so at the forefront of what people are angry about and what people want to see change. The fight for the minimum wage was originally for minimum wage and maximum hours. Minimum wage and overtime were always seen as interconnected. Yes, definitely. And at the time, you know, you saw them all kind of move in the same way. And it's interesting how much the, the demand for shorter working hours kind of died out after the New Deal. I think it's starting to make a comeback or at yeah. the very least people are demanding control for their working yeah. hours again. Um, but I think that's definitely something, you know, if it is the case that society is evolving in a way that would involve less waged labor, which I don't know if that's true or not, but people think that sometimes, um, one of the solutions is just everyone to work a little bit less. And that way, you know, you have more people employed, but then we can also take some of that social dividend in our communities and with the things we really care right. about. You know, we're big fans of markets as, uh, as institutions that can generate broad based prosperity, but we're in violent agreement with you that they have infected too much of our lives and have sort of um, eclipsed a lot of other important institutions 
and values that make human life better and more worth living. But help us envision from your point of view, the alternative to this sort of market fundamentalist version of neoliberalism that we currently live with. Paint us a picture of what the alternative looks like. Yeah, it's a good question. So the end of the book talks a lot about the campaigns that are ongoing right now. And part of what I wanted to do with the book was to, I'm involved in the policy world, so I, I know people are I, involved in different ways with you know, people who fight for expanded healthcare access, but also people who fight for unionization or the minimum wage, or people who are fighting for uh, making the child allowance that just passed uh, permanent and, and more, more less submerged and more clear to people. And the one thing I want to emphasize is that all of them have a theory of freedom embedded in them. And, you know, it's not the most important thing to acknowledge this, but I think it's, it's relevant, especially because and this is, you know, I was really influenced by people like the political scientist Corey Robin and the historian Eric Foner, who argue that um, the left had largely over the last generation to abandon the idea, or at least ceded the terms of the word freedom to the right. And the right has been able to use the idea of the market as not just markets as freedom, but freedom as a kind of market. Uh, something that's like transactional and has obvious winners and losers in very important ways uh, and, and is fundamentally yeah, an unequal kind of space. And so, you know, when I think about the things we need to do, I think we need to do something about, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to approach it, but we need to be decommodifying spheres of our life, be it health or education. Uh, that's, you know, like, everyone on public health care, that's their public health care expanded in a much more aggressive way. Uh, that's free college, free public college. Um, you need workers to have better rights. So that's, you know, a minimum wage, maximum hours in a union. We need something about the real disparities of wealth and income in this country. That's very aggressive, progressive taxation, which is what we know helps reduce um, the, the way the economy is structured to be extractive. You know, there's a lot of things to do. And it's interesting because I think some people have accused the book of being like anti-market, which it's not. Like markets have been around forever or for centuries. Um, and they'll be around after whatever, you know, neoliberalism or after capitalism, whatever things look like a millennia from now. Uh, people will exchange things and trade things. It's whether or not we build our societies being built around markets, being the ultimate allocator of what we're allowed to have and experience. And I think you know, once you kind of see that as a horizon to get out, maybe some of the other campaigns make a little bit more sense. So Mike, for my own part, I tend to not view these conflicts so much as conflicts over versions of freedom, but really just of power. You know, that I mean, the trick of neoliberalism was getting people to believe that the more powerful the powerful got, the better it would be for everybody. So whether it's laws that make it hard to unionize or uh, a set of laws that effectively make it illegal for corporate CEOs to do anything other than uh, enrich themselves and their shareholders, you know, all of this is about accreting wealth and power and limiting the wealth and power of other folks. How do you see issues of power weaving into these, you know, sort of your themes? One trick, you know, market fundamentalists, neoliberals, uh, people, uh, economists more broadly, yeah. think of as like, you know, markets are a power equalizer, right? Because you can buy or sell 
And if you don't like the offer or you don't like the price, then you can kind of go to the next person or you can wait it out. And, you know, that may or may not be true. I don't know for buying like an apple at a grocery store or something or buying some groceries, maybe, but it's not true in the workplace no. where people need to work to survive and they are subject to profound power differentials when they do so. It's not true in that grocery store if you have no money uh, and you can only get money by working under capitalism or by owning, which very few people do in, in any aggregate enough to, to earn a living. And so I, it definitely runs through that um, for sure. So we talk in the introduction, I talk about a couple of different definitions of freedom yeah. and how market society or market dependency like relates to them. And one of them that I'm, I think is very relevant for this is the kind of Republican capital are like philosophical Republicanism of the idea that freedom requires being free from the arbitrary and unjust domination of others. And the people who have who have rediscovered this notion uh, or re, you know, resurrected this notion in the last decade or two haven't really gone that far in trying to bring it to the market. They think of it in terms of the government, of course, and maybe they think of it in terms of like, like individual relationships. But when it comes to the market where we are forced by necessity, we're compelled into market relationships, um, if you are subject to that arbitrary will of others, um, it is unfreedom. Uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe those people are just, maybe they're not, but it, that's, you know, given the often how unjust it can be to be profitable uh, or be extractive, that's no consolation. Right. So I'm, I've been interested, um, Alex Gorovich, there, there's been a lot of people who've been writing about this, about bringing that notion of uh, unfreedom as being subject to the arbitrary power of others into the market sphere, because I think it's, I think that's like a frontier of how to think about it is one. And then two is that um, I've been really hearkened by a lot of the work around, you know, talk about drawing technical, but the term monosopy, which is basically uh, like the inverse of monopoly, yeah. but the idea that, you know, it's classically thought of when there's only one buyer. So if there's only, if you're a company town and there's only one employer, uh, they can exert pressure on you as a worker because there's nowhere else to work and it's very expensive to move. But what a lot of minimum wage scholars in particular point out is that the dependency of being reliant on wages and the taxing nature of poverty in this country and the poor infrastructure and poor services a lot of disinvested and poor communities deal with makes it so that kind of power is omnipresent. That even in something like a fast food franchise, of which there's many competitors who hire people, they can exert that kind of company town style power over their workers because their workers um, don't have access to like, it, it's tough to get on the bus to go find a job, you know, a mile away, or, yeah. you know, you really need that money right away, or you don't have access, you know, like the, the employers, um, you don't necessarily know about the other offers that are available. And so like the fact that minimum wage can push against that kind of power shows how profound it is. And it's true just as much in tech and elsewhere as it is there. Yeah, absolutely. It gets even more interesting when uh, so, you know, these franchises can force their workers to do things like sign non-compete agreements, which yes. makes it impossible for them to go get a job across the street making a sandwich. Yeah. Yes, that's the <laughs> level of power yeah. you have, which is which just, is just crazy, crazy when you think about it, yeah. but it also makes total sense when you think about it too. Yeah, and you know, and even further up the wage scale, you know, in employer provided benefits makes it even harder to switch jobs. Uh, yes. Because, you know, you switch your job and you're going to be 90 days without health insurance, or perhaps you've worked at some company and you've built up to three weeks vacation, assuming you get that. Well, you start a new job, you're back down to two weeks yeah. vacation. Right. 
and and on and on. It's incredibly disruptive. Right. And if you're a market fundamentalist who, who thinks like you don't have to worry about power because people can just quit their jobs or right. people can just switch the services that they're getting. So no, so the market relationship has this natural check against abuse. Well, it's like exit's not that powerful. And in many times it's it's barely anything at all. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and Adam and Adam Smith understood that it's in the wealth of nations. I mean, he makes that clear that power imbalance between uh, workers and employers. Yeah, Adam Smith is a far more nuanced and interesting thinker than the right wingers make him out to be. I know. At some at some point, our side needs to reclaim him. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take on freedom first. Next up is Adam Smith. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, one step at a time. Yeah, Mike, we always ask, why do you do this work? What motivates you? I was motivated. So I was working in finance in the aughts and the uh, financial crisis happened. I started to write about it and uh, I really wanted to be involved with what became the Dodd-Frank Act, but what, be, what more generally financial reform. So, um, you know, I was writing about it online and it got picked up and, you know, I, I got uh, mixed in with the Roosevelt Institute where I still work now and... Uh, you know, I was able to write for a broad audience and also analyze policy. Part of it is that I just think that like, it's shocking how bad a lot of elite opinion is. And it's, it sounds stupid <laughs> when you say it out loud, but it wasn't until I got here. And, you know, I, I remember a lot about the austerity of the Obama years and the people making these arguments about why um, unemployment couldn't get below 6% or 5% or even 4%. And then, you know, why, you know, there was a debt to GDP cliff. And if you didn't do deficit reduction in 2012, you know, you were going to see the economy collapse. And I could see how I came from, you know, math and finance where like, there's obviously a lot of problems with the financial sector, but there's a little bit of like a BS sensor built into it. And just having it go off all the time and thinking that, you know, there's just something fundamentally wrong with the people who are justifying the way the economy is structured. And once you could see through that, I was like, well, you know, it is worth me spending some time trying to fight against yeah. this because, you know, I'm blessed and privileged enough to be in a position to do it. And it matters quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, it matters in its own small way, but, you know, these people have no natural predators. You need some. No, to, like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Go after them. Oh, th and thank you for using that word. Thank you for using <laughs> that word. Uh, because, you know, one of my pet peeves is, is this sort of view on the left that we're in a contest over facts, uh, and we're not. We're not in a contest over facts, although facts are important. We're in a contest over power and status and privilege and wealth. And the folks we're competing with don't give a shit about the facts. They just want. They yeah. just. They just want to maintain the status quo, and uh, defend the interests of the wealthy folks that they either are or represent. And so it is important to litigate these things aggressively and, and to recognize that that's the kind of contest we're in. So we appreciate it. That's, that's for my day job. And then for the book, Freedom from the Market, I wrote it because one, I wanted to challenge myself by writing something that was like historical and narrative. And I thought that was a better way to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope it was right. And um, also because it's like, I think one thing that is nice about history and, and the history of these fights is that like the moment can be very discouraging. It's been a good week with the American Rescue Plan, but it's probably going to be a bad, you know, like things will get bad again in its own way. And uh, it is easy to be discouraged by the courts, by the Senate, by bosses, by 
rapid, you know, rampant inequalities in wealth and income. Um, but people have faced those challenges before and they fought and they made arguments and they did their best and sometimes they won. And I find that encouraging. So that's why I wrote the book the way I did. For sure. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being with us as always. Absolutely. And thanks for your work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. So Nick, as you pointed out in our conversation, you can't talk about freedom without talking about power. Yes. One place where a lot of scholarship should be devoted is to creating essentially some sort of a math or a physics of power, because it defines almost everything in economics and in human societies and so on and so forth. And, and we have such poor ways of characterizing it, measuring it, analyzing it, and managing it. But you know, there's a you know, there's a lot of great work obviously going on, and Mike's book being a good example of that, but also the work of people like Elizabeth Anderson and so on and so forth. Right. And it's and you know, it's deliberately missing from orthodox economics yeah. because it's something that a is uh, probably a little hard to model, but also uh, shows most of orthodox economics to be bullshit. That's right. You know, when we talk about freedom, uh, you know, there's that old expression, the your freedom to swing your fist ends at my nose. Yes. And it raises this point. We talk about that most of these freedoms that we're talking about are rival in that uh, your freedom impinges on my freedom. And what power is, uh, is how we settle these disputes over freedom. Yes. Right? Because, you know, that's that's what regulation is, that what government is, whether it's a democratic government uh, where we vote for representatives to pass laws and regulate the market, regulate the work for the workplace, et cetera, or whether it's Elizabeth Anderson's notion of private government, which is the workplace. You, Nick, telling me what to do, exactly. uh, when to come into the office, what, what to work on, et cetera. I mean, uh, sadly, there's only a loose relationship between <laughs> what I tell you what to do and what you actually do. But well, that shows you how, <laughs> how complicated these power relationships really are, right? Because yes. we're human beings. I'm also reminded of our conversation with uh, Anu Partnin and Trevor Corson, Anu who wrote that amazing book, The Nordic Theory of Everything. Right. And at the heart of that book is her observation that the Nordic countries um, are more free. Uh, like people yeah. are, are more free. That when she came to America, she was struck by how, how important that idea of freedom was to Americans. But in fact, they were much less free yes. than her fellow Finns because they had all this insecurity. That's right. It's very hard to be free when you're hanging on by your fingernails. That's right. And, <laughs> and, and this is more than just a kind of internal notion of, oh, it'd be better to be free than, than unfree. When you are free, when you don't have to worry about ending up on the street, uh, worried about whether you can see a doctor, worried about whether your kid uh, will have access to childcare or a good education, when all that stuff is taken care of and, and, and assured, you're free to take risks. You're, you're free to be an entrepreneur. You're, you're free to start a business and fail. And you know, Nick, you're a venture capitalist. Most businesses fail. Absolutely. 
if you don't have that freedom to fail, you're, you're never going to try. It's, it's too dangerous. So it's not just, oh, it would feel better to be free. It's better for the economy. It's better for society. It's better for the public good. Absolutely. Well, that was a super interesting conversation with Mike. He does great work. He, as he, you know, he indicated he is a warrior on the right side of all these issues and doing great work at the Roosevelt Institute. And his, his new book, Freedom from the Market, is in the show notes. And we encourage you all to buy it and read it. And read it. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.